Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octo non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. G. Michael Hopf is a USA Today bestselling author of over 40 books, including the international bestselling post-apocalyptic series, The New World. He's a prominent name in the post-apocalyptic Western and paranormal genres. To date, he has sold well over 1 million copies of his books worldwide, with many being translated to German, French, and Spanish. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Beyond the Fray Publishing, I love that name, and a proud veteran of the United States Marines. You can find out more about him at his website, G. Michael Hopf, last name is spelled H-O-P-F.com, and we'll have that in the show notes. Jeff, thank you so much for being here today. I want to talk about you. I want to talk about your journey. I want to talk about where you are informed in writing from and then your process and everything. So thank you for taking the time. No, I, I appreciate you having me. It's a great opportunity. And uh, so thank you. No, this is incredible. And I know that my listeners will, will love your stuff. If, they, if they're not familiar with your stuff now, there's going to be plenty of stuff for them to dive into. But first, you're a Marine. You're never not a Marine. Once you're a Marine, you're always a Marine. Exactly. <laughs> Stephen Prestfield's the same way too. So you were in for six years. And tell us a little bit about what caused you to join? Tell us kind of about what your capacity was, your MLS or whatever you want to talk about and how that sort of informed later on what you're doing now. Well, I joined the Marine Corps right out of high school. I was I had the grades to go on to, to college and things like that, but I just felt that I was going to mess up or just mess around. I just wasn't kind of mature yet. I wanted to kind of see the world and I just thought I would just kind of just dick off too much. So I joined the Marine Corps, but I didn't want to just join anything. So I signed up for infantry. So it was an O three fifty two, which is an anti-tank gunner. Damn. Now, actual grunts like O three elevens and 31s wouldn't consider me a grunt because we had the whole weapon system mounted on the Humvee. But hey, I still call myself a grunt with wheels. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it was a great experience. So I signed up for that because I just wanted to be part of an expeditionary force. I really wanted to see the world. I was a big reader mm. in high school and reading Ernest Hemingway. And I just loved just how he was kind oh, of the man God. of what I loved about his writings is that you could tell he'd seen this stuff. He'd been through this stuff. Yeah. So he's describing it. You know, here's a guy who I think he was with the ambulance corps in world war one. Then he's part of kind of the lost generation of all these artists who are gathering in Paris. And then he's over into the Spanish civil war and he's messing around. He's just, he's a guy of action, just doing stuff, seeing things, seeing the world. And I kind of really romanticized that. And so I was like, well, the Marine Corps is expeditionary force. It's kind of tip of the spear, so to speak. And I'll join that and see the world. And, I did. I had a had a great six years in. It was yeah, three deployments. It was a fantastic experience. It's funny, people always like they they want to thank me for you know my service, but I'll be quite honest, I'm grateful to my country that I had the opportunity to serve because as I look back now, it was a tremendous experience, a tremendous opportunity yeah. for young people to go and to serve and to do things. This is what they see. I mean. There's all that kind of, again, the service, but just as the whole level of experience you get when you go in. And if you just open your mind to that and then come from it with gratitude, you can take a lot mm. away from service in the military branches. So, yeah, I did that. But after six years, I had reached the rank of sergeant. It was an E5, and I was pretty much done. And all the guys I joined up with had already moved on to EAS. And I was like, okay, well, yeah, I was supposed to go maybe for like a staff sergeant. And then they wanted me to do these billets, like was I think recruiting or drill instructor, right? I think that's kind of what they started yep. recruiting you for those billets. And I was like, yeah. I, I just, I now I'm done. I think I'm done. So, kind of rotated out of that and just kind of stuck to kind of being a, a man of adventure at the time. I was a commercial diver uh, mm -hmm. for a couple of years, yeah. working offshore, 
you know, underwater construction work, things like that. And then a bodyguard for after that for a little over a decade Damn. and entrepreneurial stuff. And then one day I just started writing. It's incredible too. Have you been to Hemingway's home in uh, the Keys? I've not. No, I've been up to his place in Sun Valley, but in mm-hmm. Idaho, but not to his place in the Keys. In fact, I've never been to the Keys. My wife and I made a venture there last year. And again, just kind of seeing where he was doing this stuff. And just like what Pressville talks about this Smith Corona. So you and I have keyboards, right? And it's this very light. We can pick this up and go wherever we want. We can ride our phone if we want. But you have to have intention mm-hmm. behind everything you're writing. And then it has that film behind it. So you have to have the copy behind it. So it's like, in my opinion, it's a whole other gravitas of trying to write in that capacity. And then again, his adventures, like his life, whether it be on safari or whether it be driving the ambulance, the the Spanish Civil War, like all those things, it is so it's transformative just to read it. And I would read his books when I was in my 20s. I was like, wow, that's cool. But then I read it when I, after I was injured and recovered in my 40s, I was like, oh my God, there is so much more to this. And I just completely went over my head. Isn't it great? This is why I tell people to pick up a book and read it again years later, especially if you've gone into another season of your life, Mm -hmm. it'll hit you differently. I just did another interview uh, about an hour ago and I was talking, I just reread F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. And what a great book. Because the topic we were talking about is, I want you to talk to this guy, Nicky Ballou. He's a great guy. I need to connect you guys. Please. But he runs on so many people like, oh, I don't read fiction. I only read nonfiction, blah, 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 blah. And he goes, he's trying to sell these, these people he knows on to read some fiction. I was like, I agree. Fiction isn't just about being entertained. You're really getting, if it's written correctly, you're, you're learning morals. You're learning things. You're watching these characters play out situations and scenarios and they're having to make decisions and you're you're really seeing life kind of way kind of unfold and like you see that god when you look at the great gatsby here's a character he was gatsby you can who's inspirational born and raised in abstract poverty right and from a young age he's already trying to manifest he's journaling at a young age about read the dictionary, read the encyclopedia, exercise, breathing. Like he's already, as a young boy, trying to elevate himself to another level. And he does. He ends up going from poverty to becoming this incredible man. But he has this one weakness, and that's Daisy Buchanan. That's his kryptonite, like a Superman. That's his kryptonite. And it kills him in the end. His obsession kills him this obsession for this one individual. And so there's so many lessons in there from not just from him coming from poverty and creating success, but also what not to do, not to be obsessed with an individual or obsessed with things you can't control like another Mm. person. And Mm. so there's lessons in fiction if the story's told right, if the storyteller, the author's doing it right. But so I read that again when I was in my 20s and you're just reading it, it's more entertaining, but now I've reread it again as a 52-year-old man. I'm like, Wow, it's so good and just pointed. And, you, and again, as Scott had his own experience, he was in World War One, right? And so he also was part of that whole lost generation of artists and creators and things like that. You know, they all end up in Paris for a period of time and collaborating after the war. But fiction is so much can be gleaned from it. So I'd really tell your your listeners and your viewers to dive into some great well Lex Friedman, you're familiar with Lex, he came out with this whole list of, of fiction he wants to read for the year. And a lot of these are just a classics, you know? I mean, you've got uh, The Lord of the Flies. You've got uh, 1984. These are very impactful books. You've got uh, The Catcher in the Rye. I mean, again, classic, but very yes. good stories that you can pull a lot from into your life. And it's incredible. When I interviewed Stephen Pressfield the second time, he was talking about his new book, Government Cheese. And I was talking to him about writing fiction and nonfiction and how they're similar and different. And he said that, you know, his story too. He was a a novelist, it was a failure. And then he's like, I'm not going to go to Hollywood and be an abject failure as a screenwriter. But for him, instead of trying to be Kerouac or Hemingway and write something from this place, when he let go of that intention, it freed him. And then he started writing pretty prolifically in that capacity. And he said, fiction is the truth. Nonfiction is not. And it was just like, you can say whatever you want. You can create any dynamic that you want. As opposed to saying, well, I, this didn't happen to me directly. It's like, it can absolutely happen if you're using your imagination the right way. Absolutely. hundred percent. That's so powerful. And then, so you actually had the inception to write 
from a children's book idea that you had with your kids, yeah. correct? Yeah, yeah. I I would read to that was kind of like the job I had. Not not that my wife didn't, but I always really enjoyed kind of jumping into bed with the girls and to have these, you know, little illustrated books. And I'd read to them. It's this kind of the, the special moment that I as a father had, you know, with my girls. And so I would do that and read them. And then one day I came into the into the loft and I'm like, what do you think if I because what was happening, I, I mean go back, what was happening is I'd close the book and they go, tell us a story. So I, start, I was just going back to imagination, just telling stories. I was like, I, so I came up with a story about this dog named Kiki. And, the, and then it became Adventures of Kiki. I was coming up with all these crazy adventures to Kiki doing this, Kiki doing that, blah, blah, blah. And the girls loved it. So that's when I went aloft one night. I was like, what do you think if I wrote a children's book? Like, I think, you know, I kind of got this idea. My wife was very supportive of it. So I did it. So, I, you know, it's just like anything in life. It starts with an idea and then you take action behind it. That's the formula. And then boom, there it is. It's, it's in my hand one day. I'm looking at it. I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. Idea, now it's in my hands. And it was a legacy project. I had to work really hard to make all my money back. <laughs> That's what <laughs> I legacy projects <laughs> <laughs> I had to hustle on that one. I didn't, I didn't pay it all back. I bet all the investment back. Because I believe it, children's illustrated books are expensive. Because the illustrations are, it's the, that's the costly part oh, of it. Yeah. 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 So they're not, I mean, you know, just writing a book like we have, that's, you know, there's cost to that. But an illustrated book you're talking, it can be up into tens of thousands of dollars, depending on the illustrator. Yep. Anyway, so that just gave me the inspiration of like, wow, I, I can do this. I can really do this. And this is also the season of my life. I'm transitioning from being someone who used their body more mm -hmm. to using being more cerebral. Like, okay, I need to transition from just being more physicality and jobs and things like that. And I'm going to see where this goes. I knew my wife well enough at the time that I'm an idea guy. I've always got these ideas. Sometimes I get a lot of eye rolls from her. But they, <laughs> a lot of my ideas have paid off now. So I'll say that. She's enjoying the benefits of my ideas yeah. now. <laughs> and, and But I knew her at the time. And I mean, I know her and I knew her then. I, she was going to kind of give me the eye roll when I had this idea for this novel. And uh, so I was like, I know I'm going to write a, a few chapters. So instead of it just being an empty idea, I'm going to say, no, I'm actually, I'm so serious. I wrote some chapters. I've got 40 pages for you to read. So that, that showed an intention of how serious I was. Yes. And so she was like, wow. So we were walking the girls in the stroller. And I told the idea, she's getting ready to do the eye roll. I was like, before you do that, I've got some pages I want you to read. So she was very open-minded. We went back, got the girl situated. She went and sat down and she read the pages and she was done. She was like, this is pretty good. I'm actually quite impressed, but don't quit your day job. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, she didn't want me running off to be some kind of, you know, like starving artist. And I understand that. I was like, okay. And that's what started it. And I just used my nighttime hours and treated writing as a second job. That means I had to show up for my job every night and, I put in the work, got the words done, and then the rest is history. And I love that because a lot of writers, we talk about process, and there's some writers that I, I don't want to call them prima donnas, but they're like, you know, if I don't get up at this time and have my green tea approximately here and have this meal within this time of writing, and I can't allow the magic to flow. But there's power in grunting it out. There's power in mm -hmm. grinding it out. I was still teaching martial arts 60 hours a week when I was working on my first book. And there were some mornings when I had to get up early to get it done and nothing's happening. And there's times when it's like, if I'm going to hit my word quota for today, it's 10 o'clock at night. I got to take a shower, grab some chow, and now knock out at least another hour or two. And there's power in having that consistency, even when it feels like you may write five pages that are just complete dog shit, but then you get that one paragraph and you're like, yeah, that's that's why I wrote this so I can get to this one yeah. place and then you come back to it. So can you explain kind of what your process is? And then I know that you you write fiction, obviously, but you've done nonfiction to a certain capacity. What kind of mindset are you in? What does that look like? You know, going back, you picked up on that. You said the word consistency. I want to pick up on that real quick, though. And that is just true. I tell people that all the time. As I've gotten older, I know the importance of that. I, I can go back in my earlier years before I was a little bit more kind of aware of what a lot of the shit I was doing was just, it's all about consistency. And there's, that's where the discipline comes in. And I tell people all the time, like, whatever you want to do, whatever your dream is, is on the other side of consistency. You've just got to put in the work, man. You've got to do it. I don't know if we ever master anything to an extent. I think we're always, there's always learning that can mean anything, but you're going to be better at it. If you do one thing 
consistently for six months, you're going to be way better at it than the first time you did it than on day 180, guaranteed. And or you'll have it done or whatever that is. Consistency is big. And so I started out, I, I was inspired by uh, Stephanie Meyer. She wrote the Twilight series. Oh. Now I know before everyone goes, oh my God, he reads Glittering Vampires. <laughs> Um, it was more of her story. <laughs> by the way, I'll take her paycheck all day long. So um, mm-hmm. she wrote, well, I was inspired by her story because I, I, I love to read. I love to be inspired by other people. I, I see them successful. So I look at successful people. I'm like, yes. I may not model them, but maybe I'll try to clone some of their attributes. What are they doing? What, are, you know, what can I do little hacks that I can incorporate in my life? And so she did that. She, the idea came from this lucid dream she had. And then uh, she was a stay-at-home mom, like five kids or something crazy like that. And then, but the only time she had was at night. And so she made sure she was consistent sitting down by herself to glow the screen and hammered out words every single night. And then now we know the history of that. It's become this franchise, blah, 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 blah. But I was like, I'm going to do what Stephanie's doing. I'm going to sit down every night. Doesn't matter. Writer's block, which is bullshit, by the way. It doesn't exist. It doesn't. It doesn't. You just got to write. Just write and the words will come. And eventually it comes. Um, You just got to write every single day. That's what writers do. I try to get, I try to like, I know I've pissed people off before. And I've just said, you're not a writer unless you're writing. You're not anything. If you're a writer, writers write. You can't sit and not write for a year. You're not really a writer anymore. You're just like a martial artist, right? You're a martial artist, but you practice that discipline consistently. Therefore, that's a part of you. It's a part of being that. And so when someone wants to be a writer, a martial artist, a movie director, whatever that is, be that. And a part of being is writing. And a part of that is being alone. That's something that I don't think some writers like. (laughs) It's a lonely profession. I mean, right now I'm getting to talk with you and I I share more when I'm not in that, when I'm not writing. But when you're writing, it's lonely. It's just you and the words and God or the infinite, whatever people want to call it. You tap into that and that comes out onto the page. Yeah. Are you able to stay in the pocket for three hours, four hours? Where's your sweet spot? I, I can stand it. it <laughs> I can stand it. Really it. I, like it. <laughs> I, I, I can stay in it for like, I mean, it's really, God, it really varies. Like sometimes it just flows. And you know, when you start, you, sometimes I'm just so, so inspired. By the way, my, so my writing hours are best in the morning. I'm very creative in the morning. Beautiful. I don't know why that is. So now I've really developed this habit. I get up in the morning. I don't look at any devices. I'm usually up in the morning, out, cold plunge, meditation. I come in, kind of warm myself up, and then I sit down, and then a bam, I start writing. And just words flow. I don't know if I'm still in the alpha state of mind, but the words are this, they really works for me. I have grinded at night, and sometimes words can come, but the prose, I just connect what I call the, the creative ether. It's like things are downloading into my brain and onto the page. I couldn't even craft an outline and have these ideas and have these scenes or these characters come. It's when I'm in that creative space that is when things are just coming. And I tell you, it comes from somewhere else. I agree. And Stephen Prestel has talked about that with the muse and being in that (laughs) other spot. Even Stephen King, right? Where he was talking about like the Gunslinger series, how he was like, None of this is me. I have no clue how this is going to end. I'm just as surprised as you are when he would get mail from people that are like, how could you leave this on a cliffhanger? He's like, man, I don't know. It's coming. I'm not even writing this. I'm just a vessel. It's just coming out. And people hear that. But when you're in that place, again, you look at some of this and I was interviewed today and somebody was reading parts of my book and I was like, they were reading it. I didn't know that was the book. And I was like, that sounds pretty good. They were like, and this is what you wrote. I was like, oh, I guess there was some okay stuff in there, right? So it's kind of- Isn't that great? Isn't that crazy to go back and read what you've written? I'm like, that's pretty good. I don't really remember writing that. <laughs> that's it. And that's what we have to do. And what does that happen? As Pressfield says, we are rewarded by the muse because of consistency, yeah. because we show up, yeah. even the days we don't want to. And like you were saying, if I can write in the morning, that's great. If I have to write at night for me, I try to self-edit as much as I can to make it more refined. Of course, we have to send mm. the editors to get it where it needs to be. But like you said, when you polish that verbiage or try to go back and if you've read Hemingway, you're like, this is too wordy. This is too jargonistic. How can I get to the meat of this? Yeah. And that's, again, we're always students. So there's always revisions, I understand, but it's oh, so God. powerful. And you made a comment about outlines. Tell us your philosophy about outlines. I think you're in one side of your brain than another side of your brain. You're not in the creative side of your brain. 
I think it's okay to take heavy notes. I think, I mean, even we're talking about Stephen King. King talks about this. He, he can tell when a book has an outline or doesn't have an outline. There's something like organically flows when it doesn't have an outline. It's because I think an experienced author can probably have heavy, heavy notes or outlines and not become captive to it. A novice author, it can literally imprison them. It can stop them in their tracks. It can stop creative flow because they have the outline. I've seen this before with writers. They'll have an outline and they'll they have 40 page outline. They'll have very, just very detailed world building outline. And then they're in the space and the, they're tapped into the ether and they're, they're writing. And then something will just get downloaded on the page and like, that doesn't fit in the outline. Now they're stuck. They're like, yes. do I trust I spent a month on this outline? Because if I, this scene is beautiful. This scene's amazing. I don't know where it came from, but if I do this, that completely messes that outline up. What do yeah. I do? Now they're a hostage to their outline. Mm. Now, again, an experienced writer can just go, ah, and trash it. A novice will more than likely just remove what came, what this got downloaded from it because it's deviating yep. from where they were going. And, the, and I think that, like Steve was saying, it's the muse, the ether, God, the divine, whatever. It's drawing you in a certain direction. This is why I'll have heavy notes and I just let things roll. So the characters start writing the story yeah. and therefore, and there's nothing stopping how it's unfolding. Like It's just happening. This is really cool. I didn't know I was going to end up over here. And like, I will have ideas for endings, but I always give myself permission to trash them. If during the process, it's led me to something completely different. See, and that's the adventure, right? Having that courage to make the courageous decision to step forward and say, this is where the character's going. I'm going to trust this. And you're writing like it's barbaric. You'll have a character you've built up. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm into that. And then all of a sudden, boom, th there's like no rules. And I love that because there's so much. I know that there's no story that's like completely original, but it's not this formulaic cookie cutter idea of here, 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 this is this. And I believe that that's your superpower because when you're writing, as you do it, you're able to be dexterous. You're able to, to pivot and be agile to go the direction that you want to, which is Again, I think that a lot of people are afraid of doing that because it's unfamiliar to them. But that unfamiliarity is what should drive us forward. Well, actually, that's the sweet spot is the unfamiliar, right? That's where yes. all the magic happens. Anyway, you know, sometimes having the death of a prominent character is is used to drive the story. Like an event like the death of a character moves people. It moves them. The characters now have to move on the board because this one individual is gone. Yeah. creates a vacuum. It's whenever you have a power vacuum or a vacuum in the story, things have to move into it. This is stuff that just makes sense to me, like this character has to go. I don't want to see them go, but they, they need to move on. And it'll affect like, I'm not, I'm not sure which books you've read. Like I had a lot of heat for my second book, The Long Road, and what I did with this child. <laughs> but it was like, but when I looked at it on the entire like story arc, the series arc of all seven books, in order for the main character to progress and grow as an individual, that needed to occur. Yeah. That needed for him to go, oh, I cannot conduct myself this way anymore. I have to be more diligent yeah. and thoughtful about my actions because it resulted in, in this happening. Yeah. It changes the, the character going forward. And then all the actions after, he's a different man because of that event. Yes. And you don't want to have to kill characters off, but sometimes there's a use for them in, in growing the others. And I think that, not that it's a cop-out, but some fiction writers, when they don't have any more ideas, that's when they decide to take care of the character and they get them cut off. Mm. But when you get there, they exit before you expect it. That's when there's a lot more power and now nobody's safe. And now it's like, this, mm -hmm. this seems much more real. This seems much more plausible, especially when you're talking about this post-apocalyptic stuff because you have so much and this is not zombies and silly. I mean, not that that stuff's bad, but like you're talking about things that are like, okay, if this happened, almost like the handmaid's tale where you look at and say, mm -hmm. okay, if there were these pair, like if this country were split in half, which a lot of people think it is already, if there were a dividing line, wherever this is, what would that look like? What would the transition between the two be like? Would it be hostile? Would it be adversarial? Would there be certain components across the aisle, would there be an olive branch in this capacity politically or financially, whatever. And you uncover some of those things in a way that's just like, holy shit, that makes sense. Like that's exactly probably what would happen, right? 
Yeah, the well, I laughed a little bit earlier because uh, the latest book I, I came out with, one of the beta readers gave me four stars for it. One of the arc readers gave me four stars. And, but I don't I don't ever get upset about this stuff. I just had to laugh. You know, I'm not going to say his name, but he and I were chatting after. I was like, bro, really? I'm not worthy of five? He goes, well, it's just that it was it left the book left me sad it left me melancholy you know like it was beautiful but i was sad at the end i'm like it's apocalyptic fiction <laughs> it's in like if name. you want to happen if you want to happily ever after you're in the wrong genre baby like, <laughs> like, i went and saw the titanic and people died at the end okay, no what happened? <laughs> i do love that he had such an emotional reaction to it he was so connected that he, he was left sad at the end. I did my job. That's something I talked about years ago and I still want to do. And I like to entertain people. I'm a storyteller. I tell people I've never been in the pursuit of, this, of kind of literary awards and things like that. If one were given to me, I'd take it. But I want to entertain people. And I want escapism for people. But I also want people to think. I put the characters in situations that people then walk away from and go, hmm. What would I have done in that situation? How would I have handled that? I've, I've, I think I've converted many people from average Joes to like preppers now from my books. They're like, oh, that's an interesting thing. Well, I don't want to be in that situation. They put themselves, this is the beauty of fiction. You can take something that's important and by storytelling it, instead of just having a nonfiction approach, the person, the reader will put themselves into the story and imagine Yes. To fantasize that they're one of the characters. They find a report, one character is usually the main, and then they put themselves in that in their shoes, and then they go, okay, oh, I don't have all this stuff, or I don't do this, or I've not done that. Now they're role-playing, and it can change their life, and they go, I, I've had so many people over the years go, I have now, I do this, now I do that, and I've done that, because your books have kind of opened my eyes that I wasn't as prepared as I used to be, or I need to be more physically fit because I understand fitness is a component for survival. It's not as just about how many cans of beans I have or how many guns I have. I also have to have the ability to handle myself physically. You know, physicality is a huge part of survival. I think most, a lot of people overlook. And that's where fiction is more true than truth oftentimes because we're right. able to yep. circumvent their cerebellum and get right into the emotion. Yeah. And now we sort of ambush them with that truth. And they're like, yeah, like you they, say. Because they're I mean, connecting. Yeah. And they feel the emotion. And they go, yeah. oh, and, shit, and it comes, I got to do something. And it comes through in your books. And again, had you been inhibited when you first started, you actually had a an agent. And she was sort of impeding your ability to, to write in a way that was very free. And tell us what happened with that relationship. Margaret's a wonderful woman. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying this in a bad way. I understand. <laughs> no, I know you're not. I, I always preface that because her and I still chat. And it just, you know, right after I fired her, we didn't have a really good relationship. But we that was 10, 11 years ago. But that we patched things up. No, I was all excited to get an agent. And then I was a novice, didn't know what I was doing. was kind of bumbling my way. You know, I was, well, I'm a grunt. We just picked up, we just started to hammer away on a keyboard one day, right? And so they wanted to change some key components in the flow of the book and the story. And I didn't, it didn't feel right to me. And I'd had some people, beta readers already reading it that weren't family and friends. And they're like, this is pretty cool, man. Like, I like it. You need to get an editor though. I mean, it's kind of a hot mess. I'm like, okay. <laughs> but um, it was, it was a hot mess when I first started out. But anyway, I was like, you know, Margaret, you're, you're a wonderful agent, but I don't think this book is probably wouldn't, have been, wouldn't be a genre you would read anyway. So you're not exactly. really the avatar I'm looking for. And the people that are reading this are kind of in that wheelhouse. These are my audience. These are the avatar of uh, the audience. I'm demographic. That's a better word. I'm looking. They're probably going to read this book. They're loving it. You're like, no, we need to change it. But why are you trying to change it and change it into what? Yeah. So I fired her. I, just, I was like, I, I just let her go. And she goes, well, it's going to be really hard for you. And <laughs> and I, more than likely, it could have been I just lucked out and I edited it finally, self-published it, and it just took off. And so tell me about how it felt when you finally hit publish. I was scared <laughs> at first. <laughs> I almost had the same feeling releasing Cries of a Dying World that I did when I released The End. It had been a while since I'd written apocalyptic fictions, my 40th book. I just really put a lot into it. This this book, I put a lot into this last book. And then, um, yeah, there's, how is it going to be received? I mean, you can still be the most stoic person around, but you'll still be like, 
I just put a hot mess out there? You know, how, what's this, what's this going to boomerang back on me? I had self-doubt. I'd never done it before. I mean, the children's book doesn't really count. Like, so is it, how, what's this going to do? And I finally just, I convinced myself that, hey, as long as I can take my wife to dinner once a month from the proceeds, I'll be good. <laughs> and I was just kind of let it go. Just like, you know, I'm just going to let this ride and, you know, go back to work. I was diving again at the time. And then on day 10, because you could, you know, you know, you're on KDP, so you can right. monitor your sales. On the 10th day, man, like I woke up and there was like 50 some sales. I'm like, it's like six in the morning. What is that? That's refresh, refresh, 55, refresh, 57, refresh, 65. Like what the hell's going on? Like this thing is like it, it, all day long. It was doing that up into the hundreds. Like what is happening with this book? And I told my wife, I said, I, the book's really selling. She's, what do you mean? Like more than 10 books? I'm like, yeah, it's like at 345 right now. And it's only five o'clock in the afternoon. And she's like, what? And I don't know. It's just, it just kept going and it just kept going and it just kept going. It just got a foothold on the Amazon the logarithms and it populated it everywhere. And it was, I think there was also at that time a lot less competition than there is today. Like my timing was perfect on the scene. I think the subject matter was perfect as well. I don't know. I think a lot of these things kind of aligned and then just knocked it out of the park on that book. I think that's some of that's true, but I also believe that because like podcasts, for example, people are like, oh, there's hundreds of thousands of podcasts and there's zero barrier for entry for that mm-hmm. or even publishing your own book. Yep. But in my opinion, I love that because you take your 40th book and then compare it to a first person's book that's published out there and it looks like Muhammad Ali against a, an amateur boxer. It's like they're both books and they're both published and they're both good in their own way, but it really helps your stand sh- head and shoulders above what's going on with the character development, with the intention, with your voice, dare I say. So in that capacity, I think it's actually great because it helps you really stand out by comparison to these other ones. And again, you got in that niche early and you were really able to kind of own it, but at the same time, nobody's knocking you off that pedestal, so to speak, because you're still coming from that same place. Even when you got signed to a publisher, you were still able to maintain your voice. Tell us how that transition was and then what came from that. Horrible transition. <laughs> <laughs> In combat, it's the transitions that get us, right? You know, I, I signed from ego all the way because there's this validation, right? You know, am I worthy enough? And, you know, no one really considers you a real writer unless you're published by one of the big, you know, five publishers. You know, I mean, there's a lot of small imprints out there. I own and operate a small imprint right now. But to be, have one of the big five in New York kind of take you on, that's like, that's huge validation. And I just came boldly from ego on that and just stepped into that relationship. There's lots of great things that Penguin brought to the table. But then there were also some things that didn't go like I thought it would. And that's just because I was ignorant. It was all me. I entered in that relationship just foolhardy, foolheartedly. And they signed me to four books right out the gate and huge, huge signing bonus too. Huge advance, by the way. Like solid way, big, solid six-figure advance. Like it was kind of unheard of really in some regards for kind of an author of my stature. And I was like, eyes were lit up. Like, I'll take it. Here's my first child. (laughs) And, um, but they, well, the negative things that I didn't realize at the time is like going back to Amazon, my books, like, like when I released the long road, I was still self-published. I was out selling George Martin, Stephen King. Like it was incredible. I was the number one science fiction writer on Amazon for like the entire month of August of 2003. Like I, it was to say this book was selling hot. It was crazy. And I was like thrilled. And I'd already signed, I'd already penned the contract with, uh, with Penguin, but we weren't ready for the transition until after I'd done the, the self-publish. I wanted to, because I had tens of thousands of pre-orders already. I'm like, we do this, I'll lose all that. Like, we'll transition in October. This was August. Transition in October. Like, okay. And I'm like, my books are doing great. I'm going to be going with Penguin now soon. I'm going to get distribution everywhere. My life has changed and that changed. And uh, the minute they took over, what I didn't know is that my product page disappears oh. and then all the connections to those product pages vanishes. So all oh they do God. is they create their own product page and then they merge all the reviews over. But as far oh. as the logarithm entanglements, whatever, all the connections vanished overnight. 
So my sales just cratered because no one could find the book. Oh, it was insane. Wow. So I had to like had it star all over again with kind of a marketing campaign to be seen because people went to go buy. I was like the number one gift idea, the number one, all this thing. And it just cratered. It was horrible. That's brutal. <laughs> like you've worked so hard to do it the right way organically. And now it's like, okay, yeah. we're just cutting you off it at was, the knees. It, and it was gone. I literally should print that. I should print out. Because you can go into, if you go into like, there's an Amazon Author Central, you can look at sales data. Mm-hmm. I should literally print that out to show me. You see this, you see this like this, and he goes, <laughs> it's, it's like the same person's gone. It's like, what the hell happened? So there was that. I didn't realize that's what happened. It's, this is part of the ignorance part of it. And then um, they didn't want me to produce any more books. So I couldn't, like, I was fine with writing. Um, and I, I just, it was just the language thing that goes in the contract. And when it came down to the language thing meant is that I could not write anything else except book three. And then they didn't want me to deliver book three for like a year and a half later. So what the hell am I going to do for a year? And, a, and they didn't want me to publish anything. So when you have a prolific writer with all these story ideas and a fan base hungry for more stuff, I was like, well, it's for a new series where I'll come up with a standalone novel. Right? I couldn't do anything. So I was hamstrung. Jeez. Yeah. But that, again, these are all issues that I was just entered into a contract. I was a stupid, like clearly not wise to any of this stuff. Jeez. But that's a cautionary tale for all of us because an agent would have helped me with that. See, this go, is where yeah. like I've gone back to Morgan. It's like, I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry about some of the things I said. You're sorry about what you said. Can we be friends? And I think that that's powerful because there's a lot of people that are listening to us that are young writers or want to be your writer. And the first thing we say is be consistent. But also, again, a lot of times, because I did this, I thought, okay, I've got a TEDx talk. I'm releasing the book six months behind. After that, you know, I've got all this traction. And once I get signed or once I release the book, it's just going to take off on its own. And the publisher does virtually nothing to put the book out there. Like in their idea their job is to publish the book which is print it and they want you to get the interviews build your brand your readership your all these things and as we realize now well if i'm doing the lion's share of this work why am i giving you x amount of the royalties if i'm the one that's going to have to work on this thing anyway it's my own production so it's very much as i spoke to you before we hit record like i've had people talking to me about different things about the next book and after reading more about you and then having this conversation it's like no i need to do it the way i want to with my voice and fuck whatever their opinion is because again they're going to want to change things they're going to want to make it more of a readership idea and the people that love my stuff are going to love my stuff whether it's mm-hmm. you know on kdp or whether it's something i sell the back of my car if i have to right like that's that's the idea if i have the original intent and voice behind what my message is but you're spot on where you are now you have positioned yourself well You've created this brand, right? And then you've pushed that all out. And so why now give it to somebody else? What publishers can, because I own a publishing house now, what we do right. offer is distribution. It's hard yes. for self-published people to get distribution in, say, a barn, like a physical store, and, and right. except for local stores. It may take you in, right? Local yes. author section and the bookstore kind of thing. But they get wide distribution. It's impossible. There's only so much, so much shelf space. Yeah. That a publisher can be beneficial, but for someone like you, you're an entrepreneur. You're driven. You're motivated. You already know how the thing works. And if you've already done a book now, you already know how that process is. And if you already assembled a team of editors and proofers and graphics people to do covers, like you don't need their assets, right? A lot of people though just don't know what to do, and this is where a publisher can come Absolutely. in and help them. Agreed. At least produce, and sometimes people just creatively don't know what the hell they're doing. I've seen some people's cover designs from self-published, like, oh my God, what are you doing? And this is where a professional outfit can come in and help with that. And then, and then also then there's a resource thing. So, you know, mm-hmm. I know for our, our publishing house, there are people that have great books. They just don't have the resources to have a great cover because we're a traditional publisher. We finance all that. So we take on the book no cost. We don't crawl the money back later. We only make our money strictly from a royalty split. So we invest in the book and we pay for everything for it to be produced. And then our marketing and promotions, again, we can only do so much. We only have a certain budget earmarked for that, but we have an expectation for authors to be tooting their own horn. They need to also be very active in promoting themselves. I'm fortunate with my partners, you know, the publishing house is in the paranormal space. This is where she's from. 
She's mm. a successful podcaster. She's done TV shows in the paranormal space. So she's entrenched in that world. Yeah. And so when it comes for promotions and things like that, she, all of her authors get on Coast to Coast AM, on the nice. paranormal podcast, which is like she, so she knows those people. She knows those producers and gets them. Those are quality shows with hundreds of thousands, millions of downloads or listens over a period of time. That's a lot of traction for our authors. And they, so there's a lot of benefit that goes there. And that's where we've been very successful in that. But I always tell people, if you're driven and you've got resources to spend, you can learn how to do these things. Just do it yourself and keep the lion's share of the profits. Agreed. And the name of your publishing is Above the Fray, correct? Uh, Beyond the Fray Publishing. Beyond the Fray Publishing. I love that idea. And that's what, if you are not sure about what to do, that's the sort of publisher you want to find. It's exactly what he's describing, exactly what he does. Because without that, again, you may not have the expectations met the way that we have in the beginning, especially with Stars in Our Eyes as writers. Every time before we sign uh, an author, Shannon and I will get on the phone with them and we'll, t- and we'll talk about who we are and kind of what they can expect from us and the experience with the publisher. And then also our expectations of the author. You know, we look at it as kind of a partnership, like we're going to be investing in your book. And because when I, when we formed, when I formed this company with Shannon, coming from being an author myself, coming with yes. being with Penguin Random House, and then also having a book with Macmillan over here, you know, with Side Deal. I've been with publishers before. I've had that experience. I know what they can and can't do or what they just don't do and how slow they move. I wanted to use technology to be efficient and agile on our feet. And we're very attentive to authors. We're very, very attentive to authors' needs. Like if they need us, we're available 24 hours a day for the most part. We can be available as long as it's an emergency with the production of the book. I mean, if they have a personal emergency, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> Wait, authors have personal emergencies? No way. Yeah, they do. Some of them are drama queens. But um, <laughs> no, it, it's so, I mean, we have like the success of the book is also a success for us. That's how we make our money. And so this is why we want quality books with we, authors we know they're going to do well. And then we invest in it. We put it out there. And that's, again, that's how we make our money. But again, not everyone needs a publisher. They just don't. Yeah. And thank you for your candor, because again, for people that aren't sure what that looks like between fiction, nonfiction, all these things, like that's what people need. They need the straight shooter that's going to tell them, here's the advantage, here's the disadvantage, here's what we won't do, because it's easy to, to promise the moon and not have to deliver once. Somebody's and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of bad operators out there too, by the way, in the vanity press world, where they're just yeah. going to charge you like five, 10 grand to produce, but it doesn't cost that much. I tried my best over the years to get the, the counsel people and like, don't do it. And so we're, we're not that. And we pride ourselves on not that, on not being that. But yeah, there's a lot of people that are just will take people's money. And they just don't know. It's unfortunate. They just don't know what they're doing. Yeah. As writers, we create heroes and then we try to torture them. We make them go through <laughs> adversity because nobody wants to hear a song about somebody that's not been tested. We want our yeah. heroes, the things that we read, the music that we hear to be based in that. And you have a long life. You've lived a lot of life. Can you tell us about an, some sort of adversity that you faced in your life that at the time you didn't think that you were going to be able to get through, but once you did on the other side, you were able to find the, the gift and the opportunity in it? Well, there's two recently in the past couple of years. One I wanted to pinpoint on and I is... Something has come to me recently, and I've always known this, but now I've just really, we as a society, I think, want to be comfortable, right? I think people want to be comfortable in it. And our comfort has made people soft in a lot of ways. This has made people soft. And they always try to avoid suffering. I think when suffering happens, we should lean into that now. There's lessons in suffering. You have to look for those lessons. What I mean by embracing it, I'm not saying be identified by the event, whatever that is, but look at what it is and why this is here. So if you look at like, look at Jesus in the Bible before he creates his ministry, right? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Now, it's not the devil that leads him there. It's the spirits. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Yes. And it's in the wilderness. God in man form, human in flesh is suffering. He's not eating. He's in the, in the elements, he is literally suffering in the wilderness alone. And that's another key point. He's alone when he's experiencing this, right? And during our suffering is when there's great growth. We can level up as a human being during our suffering, or we can get picked off, by the way. 
We can succumb yes. to temptation when we're weakened in a weakened state. And this is where then the story, the devil comes in and tempts him, right? And then he dismisses it. And then when Jesus leaves, he's leveled up. This is the beginning of his ministry. This is when everything kicks off for him. And this was, it's interesting. So I look at that. I, I was like, what's interesting is it was the Holy Spirit that led him into suffering. So what this means is it isn't the devil or the badness. Sometimes good things come from bad things. They really can. And we can't see that far down the road. And I've looked at everything in my life and during the down times and the bad times and the traumatic incidences. One, I'm a believer that I've had my hand involved in it somehow. And I take ownership of it somewhere. I own some component of it, a hundred percent or 5%, but I either put myself in the situation or did this or whatever. I, I, I first take ownership of like what's happening here. But to answer the question more fully was that two years ago, as far as learning something went bad, like I blew my back out. Like I was out mm. and I was laid up. Like I couldn't walk. And I was like upstairs. I was still working. I had set up a, like a makeshift office on the floor next to the bed. I couldn't even lay in bed. And I was just working on the floor. And I was like that for four months. I was going to the VA and they finally got a, a MRI on my back. I had like two massive in my lumbar, massive herniated discs yeah. blown out. And yeah. one was like an L4, L5 it was just part of the disc material was just literally laying on the nerve itself. So I was like, the pain level was like a 20 they had given me Oxycontin. I was like, I can see why people get hooked on this. But um, <laughs> <laughs> that stuff is like, whoa. Yeah, no joke. <laughs> oh, it's no joke. And I'm glad they, they limit how much they give you with the VA. Like, because oh, yeah. I told, I'd never done it in my life. I took it. I remember I told my wife, I was like, I can see why people get hooked on this. It's easy. It <laughs> it's just a I was like, woo. Anyway, but it's bad. I could see it, it, it ends up in a dark road. You keep taking that shit. But so I'm laid out and I'm praying and I'm like, nothing's happening. And I'm forcing my hand. What something's got to change. I'm just manually viewing everything I can in this pain, the suffering I'm going through. And it was a Thursday. I talked to the VA and they, they tell me that I'm not a candidate for surgery. That'll follow up in six months. I'm like, I can't live like this for six months, guys. And they're not listening to me. I'm like, okay. So I remember that night I'm laying on the floor. This is probably one of the lowest parts of my life far as pain and suffering and a feeling of like I couldn't do anything for my family, my girls. They would go out to dinner. I'm just stuck upstairs. I'm just it's pathetic. You can see it's just you can see where someone's in a position like that over time. It just can lead them to having darker thoughts Absolutely. and doing things that are a problem in society, you know. And so I just remember us praying. It was like three o'clock in the morning. I was literally crying. I was like this is this is where when you're alone and in the darkness and suffering and you just surrender that the answers come. And I just got this feeling and it just I it just sounds like sounds crazy to say I just word popped in my head just gratitude. I was so focused on my pain and my suffering I wasn't focused on all the beautiful things I had in my life that mm. all my beautiful wife and this gorgeous house I'm in and all these friends that I had that would come and visit me and my children just all these blessings that I have my business partner and the company things are going well like I'm sitting only focused on this but when I I just need to focus on that so I just spent like a half an hour thinking about that and then I remember just in prayer I just said I told God I said this is how you need me for as long as you need me because I need to learn something I'm here to learn whatever that is right now. On my belly, I'll learn it in the prone position. I'll take it all on. However, I just completely surrendered to it. And to teach me because there's something I'm supposed to learn. And I'm going to let go of trying to fix this shit. I'm letting it go. I'm giving it to you. I wake up the next day. We're off to LA airport to pick up a dog. And I get a text message. And it's a friend of the family well-known guy and well-connected guy. And he goes, I've really heard how bad you are. I didn't know you were this bad, blah, 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 blah. Give me your information. I need your social security number for the VA. I'm like, well, what are you going to do? He goes, trust me. I sent it to him. And a few hours later, I get a call. It's the head of, I'm hard familiar with San Diego. Not familiar. Yeah. So the main VA hospital is in La Jolla. And right next to it, the VA campus sits right next to University of California Medical. It's oh, like a wow. medical school and, and they partner with each other all the time. So my friend happened to know the head of UCSD medical contacts him. And this guy then calls me and goes, 
I've got your VA records. I'm like, how the hell does this guy have my VA records? He goes, this is an emergency. You need surgery. Like, "Uh, yeah, I'm ready for surgery anytime. He goes, I know the head of orthopedic spine at the VA. He's a friend of mine. I'm calling him. I'm not kidding. That was Friday. Monday, he calls me. Tuesday, pre-op, Thursday, surgery. I know this sounds, it sounds outlandish to say, but when I finally let go, like surrender to it, it sounds like a miracle, but that's how I accept it in my life now. Like this, and what it taught me was surrender. And it taught me to ask the question when something happens in my life, why am I in the presence of this? Why is this happening? Whether it's good or bad. Like, is this happening for good because I've done all these things? Or is it just, what ownership do I have of the good things? And what ownership do I have of the bad things? I ask myself, why am I in the presence of this event? What am I here to learn? I'm open to learn. This, whatever this shit sandwich that's been served to me, okay, I'm here to learn it. Not going to kill me. Eventually one day I'll die, but this isn't going to kill me. What am I here to learn? And I open up the suffering like I've never done before. And I've had one other incident last year that happened and I just leaned into the suffering and it was another leveling up. Just had to just lean into it. You know my story that resonates with me so much. It's when I was in that place of being a victim for months and then I finally just stepped back and just said, holy shit, I'm lucky. Not that this happened to me, but I tried to find who benefited from this. And you're in your head, just like a writer for months at a time. And I was like, actually, I believe this would have happened if I was deployed in Afghanistan or in the United States. The injury would have happened, being paralyzed from the neck down. So being there, and it was like, wow, if I'd have been out there, for every one man that's injured, it takes two of my guys to pull me back. So now my team would have been compromised. Another battalion would have had to come down. A Chinook would have had to come in. And that's when it's like, I'm grateful that nobody else was put in harm's way. And that was, for me, the, big, the cornerstone of genuine gratitude because I benefited not at all, but it gave me the ability to accept it the way it was, not yeah. change it, not play the victim, not be pissed off, not justify, not bargain and say, I'm a good person. Why did this happen? It's like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the only meaning that adversity has is the meaning that we assign it but we have to yeah. take fucking ownership of it and have the gratitude <laughs> in the process. And that's yeah. the hard part. Yeah, that's hundred percent. That's it. There are always lessons in it and it's always there to level us up. Always. It's a soul thing for me. Like um, the church I go to, there's a lot, there's sometimes a lot of people that are always like, they're always feeling like they're under attack. Right? The devil's attacking. It's like, I, I don't even look at that shit. I seriously, I don't even look at it because it doesn't matter. Jesus is being led. And so it's the Holy Spirit's leading him into suffering. So, you're suffering. It, is it doesn't matter where it's coming from. Yes. You're suffering. So what you're there to learn something. You're there to get something out of that. I don't, I don't play the victim card at all. I believe in ownership of everything. And I, I examine it that way. And then I then I after examination, I go, I own five percent of that. But that's okay. You know, like or, or I own hundred percent of it. But I always examine it first, like what did I do to contribute to this situation? So in taking that ownership, that radical accountability, how does that shape us as men? How is that necessary to shape us as warriors? And why is that so important in this day and age as we speak right now? Oh my God, it's liberating. I think there's a liberation that comes from taking ownership. You're a free man now. You're not hinging. There's a weakness, I think, to blaming people or putting something on somebody else. Here's the thing. Somebody might do something. I've got a friend that's just he's going through a divorce right now. It's, it's bad. Mm. But I remember this. when One of them did something. She did something. And I, and I go, all right, so where's your part of that? He's like, what do you mean? Oh, I'm like, These things don't happen in a vacuum. It starts off over here, this one degree separation, and now you're over here. Yes. So the ownership takes it all the way back to the beginning. And you examine yourself. Could you have been a better man? Could you have done something? Where's your responsibility in this? Because this is where you grow. This is where you like, if you don't want to have that shit happen again, don't go all the way back to the origin of it and make sure you don't do that shit again. Because we all make mistakes. We all bumble through life or sometimes deliberately do stuff. Don't don't do that shit again. And I, I think men today are really abdicating responsibility for leadership in their homes a lot. I think that, Men and women have different roles. Sometimes roles kind of overlap and they're mixing and there's partner kind of, I understand that not everything's 100% a certain way, but 
the masculine is a force and it's a necessary force in a family, the masculine, the dominant masculine. And then you have the feminine and those two things come together, but the masculine is missing a lot. I think a lot of men are allowing culture to think that they need to act and conduct themselves a certain way. And this is, again, there's another cop-out. When people say that, they now, oh, I'm this way because of pop culture teaches us this. Well, then if you already know that, then don't be that. If you're just going to surrender to that, then that doesn't make any sense. I, I think there's so much to be found in ancient texts from the Stoics to other religious leaders. I mean, the Bible, all these things can teach us to be better people, to be better men, by the way. It's not, by the way, it's not easy to be a man, but a man doesn't shirk away from the challenge. It's difficult, but we're built for that. We're built for adversity. We're built to take the beatings. We're built that way. It's our comfort that is like made men soft, not to soften the body. Then it becomes soft in the mind and soft in the soul. Their souls are soft too, man. <laughs> I agree. We're to the point now in society where a man can be offended by a word by an utterance of syllables from somebody's hole in their mouth, in the front of their face. And that can put them in a place where they feel disempowered, where they allow that to happen. Listen, people, the gift of adversity oftentimes is not to put yourself in the same fucking position over and over again, to stop making the same mistake over and over again, to have the balls to say, I'm sick of this happening. How have I been complicit in allowing this to happen? Mm -hmm. And what am I willing to do next? And I understand that Society, social media has a lot of ways to distract you from that. But at night, if you can't sleep, that's what your fucking problem is. And that's what you have to unpack. And the sooner you lean into that hardship, the more you're going to learn out who the hell you are. Adversity strips away all the stuff that we are not. It doesn't tell you who you are. It strips away all the bullshit that you've covered yourself up with. And now when you look at it and you're like, I don't like what I see. Great. What are you going to do about it? What are you willing to change about it? How much work are you willing to do? Here's the thing. It's not easy. You've written 40 incredible books. None of them were easy. Showing up every day for it is not easy. Showing up on the days that you don't feel like doing it or when your back's screaming at you. But that's what separates you from everybody else. So everybody that we see that's a success, they all face adversity and they all know what's on the other side. And they say, I'm not going to allow this temporary adversity, this hardship to stop me from the greatness that I can be on the other side. Because the book is fine, but the person we become in the process, damn, that's why we write. That's why we look at ourselves like this. Yeah. It's also like too many people are living in the past Yeah, and you never get to your future by living in the past. You know, this is the importance of having goals, by the way, having a goal and then giving yourself your own word that you're going to stick to it. By the way, if you can't give yourself, if you can't keep the word to yourself, you're going to keep the word to your wife, your spouse, your husband, whoever, whoever that is, you can't keep the word to yourself, then you can't be trusted. Like, if you're going to tell me you're going to get up every day for 30 days and not drink, good. I will support you 100%. I'm not saying you've got a problem. Then do it. Then you say you don't, but then that's a weakness. Let's get to that. Why couldn't you not do that? Well, because like you've given in to something. I believe wholeheartedly that I should not need anything except God. Everything else in my life is something I want to have in, in my possession. This is something that happened to my wife and I last year. And I thought I feel she'd be okay if I shared it. <laughs> And that was, this is kind of, kind of, I went through like a dark night of the soul last year and I had gone to her and I think this has happened to a lot of men and it's men's fault, by the way. I went to her at 17 years of marriage and I said, you know, I I feel like you don't desire me as much as you used to. Right. Mm -hmm. And what's funny when I've been vulnerable to my friends and told them this story, like I feel the same way. And because after 17 marriage, I mean, marriage is, it's work, it's hard work, but it's fulfilling, but that's what love is. Love is work. You put, you, you, that's, what, that's what it is. It's doing something for somebody else. You know, when we first met our significant others, our wives, I mean, that's all the dopamine kick in, serotonin is going. That's infatuation. That's chemistry. That is literally chemistry happening. But yes. love is something far deeper, man, right? And you work on that. You build things. There's history there. There's, it's deep embedded stuff. So I went to her. I was like, I just don't feel like you, this is at Christmas two years ago. And I thought, so I, would love for us to get a relationship back after 17 years to how we were when we first started dating. She rolled her eyes and like, that's, that's not how that's impossible. Blah, 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 blah. Well, that hit me hard. Like you're not even willing to work at like that really rocked me. And I then started, this goes at the storytelling part. I started telling myself stories and in the months from December all the way through the spring, 
I made my wife the villain in my story. And it, our relationship started to really started to divide. Like we were not getting along at all. It was bad. It was bad. And then finally, there was this crescendo event in August. Everything came crashing down. And then her and I were left with this binary decision, you know, this way or that. It's in and out. This is where we got. Wow. And we both, because we're just, I think, you know, good people, looked at each other and goes, I'm in. And like, I'm in too. And that's when we kind of broke free of the dark night of the soul and we recommitted. And then we got into deep prayer and lots of meditation and all these things together. And our lives completely transformed, bro. I mean, completely transformed. Our relationship now has all the tenets of expression that when we first started dating, you have with layered in with the history, you know, and the children, all that. Like it's the best it's ever been. But we had to go through suffering to get there. Lots of pain. I'm grateful for all of it. Yes. I'm grateful for the pain. I'm grateful for the suffering. I'm grateful for all the shit that happened because it led me to having an awakening and really like understanding that this is the question I asked myself at the time. I was like, I had to get this now. And this is where I think men hold accountability in relationships a lot because men are, the masculine is a powerful force. I was asking for desire, but I wasn't being desirable. And I remember I looked back and I was like, I was kind of an asshole. I was this or that. And she goes, all I want is you to be kind to me. And what I hadn't realized that over time, I'd been not a nice guy because you take people for granted, right? And so I said, if I want desire, I need to be desirable. That's on me. I was asking her to give me something that I wasn't worthy of. So I was trying to control how she was to react to me. I I was trying to control her to give me something that, which then if you're, if someone's willing to do it, then the resentment can build from that. Oh yeah. And man, I was just, Right. And so I was like, well, no, I'm just going to let go of all that shit. And I'm just going to be, I'm going to be desirable. If I want love, I'm going to be love. If I want this, I'm going to be that. And I started showing up like that. She changed like that. Wow. The power of taking that accountability, right? That's everything. Until we do that, we can't build anything real after that. It's impossible. It's all superfluous. It's not going to maintain anything. I've had a lot of conversations with men about it because when I mentioned the story, they're like, oh, my wife, our sex life is this, or we don't have that, and all these things they talk about. I'm like, have you thought about your role in that? You're the only person you can control is yourself. So what are you doing? And a lot of people don't want to, they want to play the victim. Like, bullshit, man. Come on. It takes two to tango, as my dad used to say. It takes two. So what's your role? You can be that and they don't receive it. Then you have a different story. Then, then maybe something's not right there anymore. But at, le- at least you need to show up. And then you show up and then see what happens. More than likely, they're going to come. If you become that powerful gravitational force in your relationship, it's going to bring them right in. And that's what the strong masculine does. You become this strong gravitational force. Be nice, protect her, make her feel safe, provide security, all that. Not just physical, but just financially, just take care of me. I couldn't agree more. My wife makes me want to be a better man, makes me want to be a better author, speaker, coach, writer, all these things, because I understand exactly what you're saying, where you have to have that. I met my wife. I took her to her junior prom in 1993. When I went to college, we disappeared for 20 some odd years. When I got the military, come back around, she's divorced, I'm divorced. And we pick up almost like we never left off. And it was just, um, incredible. But even then, it's still work. She owns her own business. She's an entrepreneur. She's a photographer. She does all my professional work. So I was grateful to find somebody that was understanding that sometimes you work on the weekend, sometimes you work late, sometimes you have odd hours. It's okay because this allows us the ability to take two weeks off here or to go do these other things. But trying to convince somebody else of that, especially without any kind of history together, it's tough, but for better or for worse, pain and discomfort are always the best teachers. And that's how we actually learn to value something. If you're not sure if it's valuable or not, imagine it's gone. They say you don't know what you got till it's gone, but that's not true. We just assume we will always have it. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing that and you take them for granted, man, what is it? What comes after the after pride? I think it's the fall, right? Yeah, exactly. It is. What stoic was it that was talking about? We never really possess anybody. We just borrow them or something that's like it. that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. <laughs> and, 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 and the fact is, like, everyone, we have to understand that people are, are want to be with us by choice. 
So why don't we be the best version of ourselves? So if you want them there, then be attractive for them to want to be there, you know, and most people will stay in relationships that are going sideways for only a certain period of time. And eventually their vow of marriage is to that person that you no longer are. There it is. So then whose responsibility is it if you've changed? And so I just told me, it was like, you are what you attract to yourself. So you want love and desire, then be that. If you want, money is energy to me. It's so much easier to make it now than I used to be when I was young. And it's it's just because I just understand it better now, by the way. But if you just embody that, you embody these things. You remember going back to being a writer, just be the writer. If you want to just be these things, embody these things with absolute faith. But when it comes to just relationships, everyone has a choice whether they want to be with you or not. And so be the best version so they do want to be with you. And I, I tell it to my guy friends and some of them still want to be acting like a bunch of bitches. I'm like, well, okay, then you're going to be, you know, that's your choice. Yep. Like, you're the one choosing it and you're creating this. No, it's not. okay. You've got a hand in it, brother. Trust me. We have to earn it. Yes. Every day. Jeff, I could talk to you forever. I feel like I've taken a tremendous amount of your time, but I, I've loved this conversation and I love the work that you're doing. Where can our listeners learn more about you? Where can they learn about publishing your books, everything you've got going? Uh, they can just you know find me on Instagram, uh, G. Michael Hoff. Also my website, gmichaelhoff.com. That's the, they can find all my books there. Amazon's usually the best place to get them. They can also find them at Barnes and Noble and these other kind of you know online retailers and whatnot. But um, yeah, they can reach out to me on Instagram if you want or in Facebook. I think I got a Facebook page, G. Michael Hoff there as well. Facebook.com backslash G. Michael Hoff. I think that's it. I've loved the conversation. Thank you so much for the time and for being on. And I think that this has been a very robust conversation for anybody listening. If you're an author, if you're at a crossroads, if you're leaning into hardship, I think they could get a lot of gold out of this. So I appreciate you. Thank you for your time. I appreciate you. It was really good. Thank you for for the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media.